Over the past decade or so, we've all at one point or another run into the article by the reporter that focuses on the military. With all the violence and the conflicts going on in the world, there are certain journalists who become known as the experts, and sometimes in a bad way, being involved as they were during the Iraq war uh, in the United States, where they're sort of paid by the military, in cahoots with the government. But then there are also those who do the essential work, the critical reporting, the checking of the facts, the watchdogs. My guest today is one of those watchdogs, and he works specifically in his home country, Germany, with a unique situation, which is the German military in this modern era. This is Citizen Reporter number 407. It's the 9th of January, 2011, and let's go. So hello everyone, um, Mark with you here in Berlin, and I'm in the press house, which we'll maybe touch on briefly. Uh, I'm here today with a journalist and a citizen of the world, uh, Thomas Wiegold, uh, who I've known briefly and here and there on the internet, but gotten to spend a little bit of time with over the last week, and I definitely wanted to feature him in this podcast. So first of all, instead of talking about the man, let's talk to the man. Good morning, Thomas. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for being here in the Pressehaus, as, uh, to put it correctly in yes. German, yes. <laughs> which actually is, is a place or an office building with a lot of uh, correspondence covering Berlin government and Berlin politics, federal politics yeah. from Berlin for the country. Yeah, when you walk into this building, uh, you get the feeling that this was built not so long ago, but in a slightly different time where the the architects and the planners thought press and government and and it's going to be great there's going to be lots of journalists and they're going to need a place and they're going to this place is going to be a hit and and now just walking around with you a little bit i get the feeling like this is a slightly different era than they imagined uh, there's not as many journalists, or, or they're not necessarily not, not here. Not really, not really. Uh, the, the point is that in, in the 1990s, uh, the first idea was, which is not bad, to have uh, the parliament and the government buildings and, of course, the media pretty close together, some kind of government quarters or parliament quarters, what do you want to call it. So it's pretty convenient. Uh, you walk to the Reichstag, although there's a river in between, you have a bridge, and uh, you have parliament buildings, and it's it's, it's pretty close, actually. Yeah. You can see the chancellery from here, which is also pretty convenient. It's all very symbolic. Yes, of course, <laughs> it's also pretty symbolic. <laughs> the point is, um, in, in, in the 1990s, when everybody had this Berlin hype, everybody said, well, it will be great, and Berlin is the city to be, the place to be, and we need office space. So everybody built office space, and... The thing you find everywhere around here is office space. <laughs> so actually, there was a market, um, and no one anticipated, anticipated a market, 
And journalists looked for the cheapest location they could get, not necessarily the closest. So if you pay a few hundred euros less per month, you walk a few meters more. Yeah. That's and, the idea behind it. But and that's what some journalists are doing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not the journalists, but their uh, uh, publishers. Yeah. Uh, the publisher will tell you, no, you're a young guy, you can walk a little bit more and mm. we pay less. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to begin with that to describe the surroundings a little bit, and I think yeah, that but sets then, the... Then you should mention, and that's quite interesting, I've shown you this line running through the building, yeah. which means this building is right on the border, the former border between East and West Germany, which ran through Berlin, or technically speaking, the border, the Allied uh, demarcation line within Berlin. Right. And so uh, if you're... My desk, I think it's in the West, and you're sitting in the East right now, <laughs> basically speaking. Uh, yeah, it does feel very divided in here. No. <laughs> that is an interesting aspect. Um, the other thing is we, we've chosen this location, and, and we've talked about journalists working for some uh, perhaps uh, larger news organization. Uh, you yourself, I want to make sure to introduce you a little bit to the audience and also what you do and how you do it. Um, you're uh, an independent journalist. I mean, you you don't just work for one uh, um, media outlet, do you? That's right. That's right. Actually, uh, my main work goes into my website, uh, which is a, a blog on defense affairs. But I'm writing for other media as well, among others, uh, Germany's news magazine Der Spiegel, for public radio, some other... Uh, magazines focused on, on, on defense affairs. Yeah. So you could call me an independent journalist, especially because I'm running this website, this blog, uh, with information on, on defense and security policy. Yeah. And uh, I don't know the history. I mean, how did you get into being a, a military uh, specialist when it comes to journalism? How did that come about? Well, uh, as with so many other things, it just happens, and you slip in there like, People, yeah, well, actually, I, I, I never was, was a military. Hmm. Uh, even even worse for some people, I'm a CEO, a conscientious objector. Right. So we, we had the draft in my time uh, mm -hmm. when I was that age. Uh, and, and I did the alternative uh, civilian service mm -hmm. uh, instead of, of uh, my, my military service. But then, um, actually, in 1993... I've been a journalist for, for some time already, and I was with the AP, with the Associated Press. We had the first overseas mission and deployment of German soldiers. Uh, there was a Somalia mission, UNOSOM. Some people remember Black Hawk Down and, and all what, what, what resulted in that. So it was the first time since the Second World War that German military was deployed in an overseas mission. Apart from humanitarian missions, which ha had been there before, like a field hospital in Cambodia or some uh, disaster relief in, in Turkey or things like that. But as a military mission, this was a first. Mm -hmm. And within the AP, which had a German service at that time, I argued that you couldn't leave it to the American colleagues of the AP to cover this because to the uh, American journalist, Germany was just the 17th or 18th country joining in this Somalia mission. So they didn't care, is this France, is this Germany, is this Morocco or whoever. To them it didn't make a difference. So I argued some German journalist had to go there to cover this. And I ended up standing at the runway in Balatwain in central Somalia when the first German plane came in. Mm -hmm. 
And this got me hooked on this, uh, well, on this uh, field and this beat. Hmm. And I continued that afterwards. Also, when I left the AP and joined Focus magazine, a news magazine in, in Germany, for which I also covered military affairs for 11 years mm. until I got uh, independent or self-employed in 2010. Yeah. Let's stay around that point where you're in uh, Somalia uh, with one of the first planes yeah. uh, to arrive. No, no, I was, uh, I was, I was from standing Germany. there when the first plane oh. arrived. Oh, you were ahead. Yeah, yes, yes, we all. There were group, I think, uh, a, a dozen, a dozen or so of German journalists. Yeah, and the the, the the German soldiers were pretty much irritated because they didn't expect any journalists to be there. Mm. Go ahead. <laughs> and and this was the the era, if I'm not mistaken, because I was a little too young. But uh, you know, the '90s, ninety three, ninety three, ninety three. Yeah. So what I remember is. 91, you had the Gulf War, and there, this was always referred to as one of the um, sort of turning points in the relationship between military and media, whether yeah. that's exaggerated or not, yeah. because you had the pooling system at that yes, time. Yes. And if you wanted in the media pool, you had to be good. And if you, if you yeah. were too irritating to the military, you're out. Right. I don't know the German context, and I'm sure it was changing at that time, especially as this was the first mission. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, actually... Uh, The Germans in the beginning had really no idea how to deal with that because they had no experience and, and we were just there. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in Somalia you could do that. You could just go in and uh, I, luckily a, a friend of mine was a, a reporter with a public TV station, a German station at that time. So he had the money to, to hire a plane and we flew in from Nairobi on our own basically running our own plane, flying yeah. into Balladwain, covering the story, flying out again, yeah. which was a luxury, of course. Mm -hmm. um, later on, I've been there a few times with the military, and um, they would take you there, and they would even keep you in the camp, and you do, could just walk around with them, some kind of embedding also. They never formally embraced this term, embedding. Mm. Uh, since then, um, they have, of course, refined... They, they have a lot of experience now. They have refined things. They refuse embedding, actually, or at, at least they refuse a term. They're still uh, trying to to work with, with what, what, what they really do with journalists. But it's still work in progress. Mm. But so at that time, as you described, there was no military telling you Uh, don't go there, don't go there, um, don't write that, definitely not. No, uh, no, 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 not really. Everybody was testing out uh, who are these guys in uniform and who are these guys with their computers and, and notepads and things like that. And so, uh, you see, uh, from, from a German point of view, until, the, until 1989 or 1990, uh, German military ended on the River Elbe in the east, mm -hmm. that, from from West German perspective, because that was where the Warsaw Pact, the, the Cold War bloc, began. Mm -hmm. And since then, uh, things have changed dramatically, uh, like, uh, you know, up to the Chinese border. Afghanistan, the German of the northern Afghanistan, has a border with China. Yeah. So technically speaking, 
German military is deployed close to the Chinese border, right. which is, of course, quite a difference from 20 years ago. So it was uh, some kind of testing and, and finding out what what can you do. You know, in, in, in the beginning, we were allowed or even able to report or send our reports via the military SATCOM mm -hmm. because uh, SATCOM or a typical SAT phone was 80 kilograms $10,000 and $20 per minute mm -hmm. in that time. And uh, you couldn't just take your set come with you, mm -hmm. as you can these days, which is a size of a handheld phone or, or, or laptop or so. So if you were going to Ballot Way into the German military deployed there, you were depending on them for transport, but also for communications. And we just did it. Yeah. Hmm. And so how does this... For you, um, after that mission, did you say to yourself, "What's like if there's a next one, I'm going"? Uh, was it already becoming the focus of yours, the military? No, really, was was a part-time focus mm -hmm. because uh, I was sharing the speed with a colleague in in, in the AP office in, in in Bonn at that time, which was a seat of government. Mm -hmm. So we we shared this, and I was doing this among other things, and. Uh, I got full-time into the military uh, or defense reporting after 1999 when I joined Focus magazine. Mm -hmm. Because with a weekly, uh, you have a different approach. You have more time to, to research your stories and to develop sources. And, and it's just a completely different work compared to a wire service. So, mm -hmm. so I had much more leeway to do things my way and then I got into into real reporting on this beat and of course pretty soon uh, things uh, got much more interesting with Afghanistan starting late 2001 or early 2002 and uh, taking up my time ever since. Yeah. I'm curious, I think people may have heard bits and pieces over the years, but especially in the English language press, I think it's limited. Um, Somalia at that time was also interesting, but especially Afghanistan. The impression I get is not, of course, not everyone in Germany wants troops, their troops in Afghanistan, right? I mean, this Definitely is... Definitely not. Well, I think it's pretty similar to maybe the US and oh. other countries that even a majority opposes... Mm -hmm. uh, the German mission or, or the, the ISAF mission or NATO mission or whatever you want to call it. So uh, it's, it's a touchy subject in Germany and uh, in Germany it's even more so as this mandate, this deployment has to be extended by parliament each year. Hmm. So that's, that's quite a difference to the US or to the UK. So the government has to, to convince parliament to extend the mandate each and every year. Does it get extremely close, like uh, till the strike of midnight there, it's almost not extended? No, no, it's not that bad. They, but they start this discussions pretty early, and the mandate is, is, it's, is up for extension in January this time. Oh. So um, they have been discussing this for, for some weeks or even some months now, and a, re a result is that the, the next mandate will have a, a lower figure for possible deployment of troops because the opposition 
especially the opposition, demanded to start a drawdown, just as the US did. And in, 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 in this German mandate, there's always um, a maximum figure Mm -hmm. for for how many soldiers can be deployed in a certain mission. Yeah. So it was 5,300 until now, and it will be 4,900 as of February. Mm -hmm. Which means, and the promise, if it's possible to draw down even further, down to uh, 4,400 by the end of the year. Mm. If this is possible. The German military has specific regions, right, that, that they're um, managing in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, they are responsible for the north, of the north regional command north. Mm -hmm. They, they they have the command, and th with those 5,000-plus soldiers, they are the third largest troop contributor. After the U.S., of course, which have quite a lot, uh, the U.K. was approximately 9,000, and then it's Germany already. Mm. Um, I'm curious if there's a, a difference as well. Let's see if I can put this together. Um, you get to speak with um, military officials, and I, right. I, I wonder also um, actual soldiers. Right. Right. Um, what do they say about the conflict in Afghanistan? And I ask this because sometimes uh, you have what the public thinks, maybe even what politicians say, and then you have what people who are there, who have done the work, yeah. and yeah. return and maybe go back, how they see it. One of the famous cases was, I think, one of the, I want to say Petraeus, I'm not sure if it was him, who is even was quite angry with Obama over uh, troop uh, reduction yeah. and anything he said about it. Yeah. Uh, my impression is that he wants to stay committed and, and you know. Yeah. Yeah, and in Germany, we have a different problem. It's um, the problem that um, over the years, or the first years of this Afghanistan deployment, the public line or the politician's line was we are doing, well, a development work and... Um, military is basically there to secure development aid and, and work. And only in, let's say, 2008, 2009, they started uh, to, to admit that it's a combat mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has, has changed things in the, in the German public quite a lot because it's a pacifist uh, pacifist, um, not a pacifist nation, but mm. the, the pacifist attitude in, in post-war Germany after the Second World War, yeah. it's like um, for the German public, military is not a means of foreign politics. Yeah, not an option. No, it's not an right. option. Right. And uh, I, I, you can think that's all right, you can think it's, it's, it's a bad idea, whatever, that's the way it is. Uh, you might even say that re-education after World War II was too successful <laughs> by the Allies. So, in in, in a way, uh, German public basically doesn't want military to be deployed for combat missions. And you have to keep that in mind if you see the more than 50% objection to this deployment. From a soldier's perspective, they are pretty not happy. They are glad that finally... Politics and the public is accepting that they are doing a combat mission, that they are not some armed development helpers or development aid people. They are not there to build uh, girls' schools or drilling wells and things like that. They are, they are to do combat. Mm. And uh, this uh, was a, a rethinking in, 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 in the German public. Mm. And 
if you talk to soldiers these days from from a private up to staff officers, they say, well, uh, we accept that politics, uh, politicians tell us what to do. But on the other hand, politicians have to accept that we are a means of combat. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's a specific post-war German situation, which is completely different from other European countries. Mm-hmm. And and even, let's say, the Netherlands. The, the Dutch have, uh, in a percentage, sent much more soldiers to Afghanistan than the Germans did. And, of course, even in the, Nether- uh, even in the Netherlands, this deployment... Um, There is a heated debates on it, as I understand. Yeah. But I think that even the Dutch are more prepared to accept to send soldiers into combat. Uh, leadership. Leader Because people, yeah, I find maybe. people have become very, at least the loud ones, have become very much... Um, uh, isolationist a bit. Like, yeah. uh, whatever country, if it's not us, they're not worth it. Uh, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, this right. is the spirit I get a lot. Yeah, What that, are we that, risking? That's a different, different thing. It's uh, maybe, yeah, and, yeah. And, and maybe they say we, we reject this war in Afghanistan, but they do not reject the basic idea <laughs> to deploy soldiers. Uh-huh. That's a difference. Yeah. Even those peace-loving Dutch <laughs> do not reject the idea to deploy, deploy soldiers as a means of foreign policy, <laughs> whereas the Germans do. Um, you've uh, we, we'll talk about Afghanistan. I'm sure it will come up again. We talked about Somalia. In between, there have been other places. Yeah, so. like the Balkans. Let's go to the Balkans. <laughs> you know, I, I've I've been there recently. Yeah. It's sunny and uh, yeah. cold, but nice. Um, Germany has soldiers there right. still as part of K4. Yeah. Yeah, uh, elite, actually, it's a elite nation, and the command, nation, commander K4 is a German. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about how many uh, soldiers, at least German... Uh, uh, I think uh, approximately 1,000, roughly, a little bit more, I think, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I suppose the situation is similar where, overall, if you ask the public, they'll say, oh, we don't want military deployment. No. Oh, it's more acceptable. Oh. <laughs> yeah, in a way, it depends. Uh, first, I think the German public has all, almost forgotten that we still have soldiers in the Balkans. You know, this started in 1999, that's 13, almost 13 years ago. And if you do a street poll, people will tell you, what, soldiers in the Balkans, Germans? Never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's just not on, on the public radar. They They... Mm-hmm. They just don't care about it. But on the other hand, once it started, I think it was a lot more accepted after after a long debate. We had in the mid-1990s a long debate if it is possible to send any German soldiers to the Balkans where German soldiers in, in the Second World War had been with a very, very bad past, right. committing atrocities. And so... Um, The question was, German boots on the ground on the Balkans, is it part of the solution or part of the problem? And this public debate shifted from part of the problem to part of the solution uh, for a simple reason. From Bosnia and also from Kosovo, all those refugees, where did they go? Partially or for a large part, they came to Germany. So... 
this was especially true uh, in, in, in the Bosnian War with the siege of Sarajevo and, and, and other stories like that, that all those people ended up in Germany. Mm -hmm. And you, you had uh, municipalities in Germany uh, calling their their friends in, 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 in the federal government, in, in the party, telling them, we can't cope with the influx of refugees anymore. Oh. So do something about it. Mm -hmm. Which I think fueled the will of the government to deploy German soldiers to the Balkans. Mm. You know, it's, it's right in our backyard, so to speak. Yeah. So it's a completely different story than Afghanistan, of course. Mm. Like the connection between the countries. I was also thinking, at some level, as years go by, uh, maybe when Kosovo became an, uh, to the forefront, um, there are enough people that perhaps have influence directly uh, who are of uh, a Balkan background who could contact the government as well. You know, you get elected mayor, yeah, or, or, and, yeah, but, but that would take time. Possibly yeah. as well, yeah. 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 Of course, we have a large diaspora of, of Kosovars and Bosnians yeah. and other Balkan people here, which also means a certain connection. That's right. Yeah, because yeah, I, I thought about that when you were, uh, I thought about the, um, the German military being in, in Kosovo and, and beyond that, um, what the public thinks because there was that conflict and they flare up sometimes at the border uh, with the attempt to, I guess, patrol a border or, or control a border in northern Kosovo. Yeah. And then the there was some... so-called administrative boundary line. Administrative boundary line. Right. Yeah, well, you know, they're all invisible lines. Really. <laughs> right. Like the inter-entity boundary line in Bosnia. All right. Yeah, but yeah. the ABL and, is a and, different thing. Yeah. And in one of those recent... Um, Incidents. Uh, German soldiers were actually shot. Right, uh, right. A know. few weeks ago, it was um, at one of those barricades set up by the, the North Kosovo Serbs. Uh, there were shots fired at German soldiers. Two were shot. Among them, the battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, which is pretty seldom that you get a lieutenant colonel or battalion commander shot. At. I'm sure he was surprised. Yeah. In, in, <laughs> indeed, he was, and he sent me an email that it was a little bit strange, and he was hit in the arm, and uh, yeah. so it it went out um, gladly. It, it didn't didn't went out that bad. So. He, he had a few days in the hospital and then after that he was okay again or he was uh, deployed again. But yes, still, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, getting, it's getting difficult to, to, to grasp as you have Serbia wanting at least some, some option for EU membership. Mm -hmm. You have Kosovo trying to get into the international community and to remove those uh, borders, so to speak, which make uh, it difficult to, to deal with neighbors and have commerce running and things like that. So it's an anachronism in a way. Yeah. And it's uh, basically those North Kosovo Serbs. And I don't know what, what will be the solution. By the way, uh, K4 or this international military uh, run by NATO is, as they call it, a third line responder. To explain this technical term, usually you ex uh, expect first the Kosovo police to deal with things, second the EU police, and if, if those fail, then it's K4 with the military to join in. Who's in the EU police? Uh, That's international police? Right, right. But then you have the problem that not even all EU members have recognized Kosovo, mm -hmm. which makes it... Uh, well, uh, not that coherent organization. 
and it, it doesn't have the full support of, of the whole EU membership. Mm. And the North uh, Kosovo Vars don't accept uh, OILEX, this EU mission. Right. And so it's, 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 it's kind of a mess, but the military should be the very least to, to deal with it. It's a political question. Mm. But as so often, and, and Afghanistan is not, not a difference, as so often military is used um, as a replacement for a political solution. Yes, yeah. Yeah. For those countries that are willing, yes. Yeah, yeah. right. But it, you see, it's, it's it's pretty same in Afghanistan that uh, ISAF. Everybody looks what's what's ISAF doing, yeah. and who is doing what UNAMA is doing, mm-hmm. which basically is the political authority by by the international community. It's not ISAF. It's UNAMA. Yeah, but, but people look to the military, right? Yeah. Right, because it's so easy. Of course, yeah. if you give an order, the military has to execute it. Mm-hmm. If you want to achieve something in the political arena, you have to convince people, which is a time-consuming process. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, I was reading through uh, different um, pieces that you, you've written in English and, and reading some of the German, uh, and I was reminded of something, you know, growing up in the U.S., especially as I became politically conscious, of course, you, if you pay attention, you'll realize that the U.S. is a major weapons manufacturer. Right. Uh, and, and no matter where you look, uh, when it comes to military, uh, there's always this connection. Uh, and, and then I realize uh, here we are in Germany, also a major weapons manufacturer in the world, if, not, <laughs> if not the second. Uh, Third. Yeah. Oh, the th- who's the second? Russia. <laughs> I, I think it's Russia. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Germany, by, in terms of... of, of financial volume, it's the third largest uh, yeah. weapons exporter at the mm. point, exporting worldwide. Mm. But that comes uh, because German technology has a hefty price tag. It's especially two things uh, they export, or which, which bring the money. It's uh, non-nuclear submarines. Uh, they, the Germans are producing, well, they say, and I think you can believe them, world-leading fuel cell submarines. Ah, that's what I was wondering. Is it diesel? No, no, it's not, it, it's, it's not diesel. It's fuel cell, yeah. and they can stay submerged for fourteen days. And yeah. in, in the non-nuke class, that's that's world leading indeed. Yeah. And the second is uh, tanks, and that's mainly the the Leopard main battle tank uh, is also considered world leading. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's strange. I mean, a couple of things are coming to mind here. One. Um, submarines and tanks mm-hmm. uh, not to say you know we're a post-war world and but uh, submarines especially i start to wonder how they justify or not justify but you know when you want to sell submarines yeah. what do you what do you say i mean this is, hey, this we're is some kind submarine. of naval warfare that's expected no no not necessarily um, um, submarines come into play for two th- two things the one is um the, the Germans delivered those submarines or have delivered different types of submarines to the Israelis, mm-hmm. which, as never been confirmed, have been retrofitted to, to use it for nuclear missiles. Wow. Which means, also, th- this is quite probable, but never has been confirmed, that this gave Israel the capacity and the capability to launch nuclear missiles from anywhere in the Mediterranean or the Red Sea or right. whatever. Or they can take their submarines. Exactly. Yeah. 
That's point one for the use of submarines. The other is um, as a means of intelligence gathering. Submarine, you know, you don't have those um, submarines for um, convoy warfare as in the Second World War, destroying merchant ships or transport or so. It's it's not about uh, um, hitting someone with torpedoes, although they still have torpedoes. But but the main task of those non-nuclear submarines is... um, Intelligence gathering, surveillance, mm-hmm. reconnaissance, things like that. Mm. Because you can send a submarine somewhere undetected, especially right. those fuel cell submarines are so quiet that it's pretty difficult to detect them. Mm. That, that's the idea behind it. Yeah. And so they are ideal for doing covert surveillance. By the way, this was a big issue uh, uh, in, in Portugal over the last... Five years. It's a running joke, in fact, uh, that uh, one of the previous governments uh, bought uh, German submarines. They were old. I don't think they have the latest. No, they bought a new one. Oh, oh, they, which, they... which actually, that, that's a funny joke in itself. Uh, the purchases of submarines by Greece and Portugal put Germany on the third place of the world's arms manufacturers. Uh-huh. Because those submarines are pretty expensive. Right, that was why it was a joke. What are we doing? Yeah, right, right. Uh-huh. So, which brought a lot of criticism in Germany. Like, wait a moment, you exported those to Greece? Uh, isn't Greece broke? And who's going to pay for those bro- broke countries? It's the Germans with their taxes again via the European Union. So, in a way, the criticism was... You sold submarines and we are paying for it. Yeah. The German taxpayer. Which is a decent criticism, right? Yeah, right, okay. right, right, right. Huh. But, of course, that, that's a different thing. It's, it's, it's not really necessarily about arms exports. Would have been with other things as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. But it starts to sound like welfare. And that reminds yeah. me of the United States, <laughs> where, you know, the, 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 the defense industry and the government have a close relationship. And it doesn't take, it's not much of a stretch to find moments where uh, they're working in cooperation, you know, yeah, uh, right. there's that that rotating door between yeah, who's know, in government and who works for you have that weapons. Probably, no, it, it's 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 a little bit more complicated here. Yeah, that's what I wonder. Uh, one point is that um, there are pretty strict rules when a general uh, gets retired. There are pretty strict rules that for the next five years, he can join a company in the field hmm. he had been working in before. For this very reason that we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Like you have retired Air Force generals who would like to join some arms manufacturer, but they, they are not allowed to. Wow. Or they lose a pension and things like that. So yeah. they're pretty strict rules. If this will remain the same in the long run, we will see. Yeah. And what was uh, the, the, the revolving door and that relationship between what the yeah. government does right. and okay. what the weapons the manufacture. Second, second, the second point is um, we, we have a problem. or the, the arms industry has a problem as the German armed forces get reduced and the budgets get cut as everywhere in the world. Yeah. The German armed forces will order less. So to, to, uh, to keep a sustainable level... The German, uh, the German armament industry has to do exports. But then Germans are also pretty strict about export rules, yeah. 
we have um, this big discussion about a possible export of Leopard battle tanks to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. which has been revealed by Spiegel magazine, which I write for, um, which has been revealed by me, actually. Oh, really? Uh, oh, okay, uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry. I like your modesty <laughs> to the point where you won't say, I broke the case. I I'll did. say it for you. All right. You cracked the case. I haven't read the article. <laughs> okay. No, but it, is, it has been in the press lately, and yeah. maybe you've, you've helped uh, that even get into the international press, that uh, Saudi Arabia is stepping up its uh, right. military right. Right. purchases. Yeah. So, um, the problem is, where can German companies export to? To Greece or Portugal, it's not a political problem because they are EU members, they are NATO allies. Uh, if they want tanks, warships, submarines, whatever, they can get it, but they can't pay for it. No, please don't sell anymore. I'm yeah, right. a Portuguese person. All right. <laughs> for the Saudis, it's just the other way around. It's, it's not a question of money. Of course they can afford it, but it's a question of politics. And you have a lot of other countries which... Uh, would be pretty much interested in, in, in German technology or in German arms. Yeah. It's Besides submarines and tanks, it's small weapons, which yeah, is really yeah. a problem. The G36, the standard assault rifle of the German army, uh, is pretty much in demand worldwide, and it showed up in, in Libya, of all places, during the Libya mm -hmm. civil war, and um, there was a big fuss here, and... and an investigation where did this come from because German companies are not allowed to sell to conflict areas into conflict regions and it turned out that these obviously it's not quite clear but allegedly these arms had been sold to Egypt and mm. been resold to Libya mm. to Gaddafi forces but it, it's not quite quite clear yet mm. but uh, It, it works always, you know, uh, those German assault rifles turned up in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And our, everybody said, how could it happen that you, you might consider Georgia a conflict region, especially when they had this war with, with Russia. So how did these guns get there? Yes. And um, nobody wants to talk about it in government, but the possible, possible, also not confirmed answer is, that, um, let's say, some security-related authorities in the U.S., which legally had purchased those Heckler and Koch guns, mm -hmm. just to help their friends in Georgia. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I see it. I'm completely unqualified. Uh, <laughs> that that the, it, It's the indirectness. It, yeah, it's, it's you do the legal well, sale, and then that person yeah, or group. Actually, they usually they demand a declaration by the receiver that they won't uh, sell uh, resell it. Uh huh. But then, okay, what's it worth? What about a donation? What if no, they no, give no, the guns? It's not about say, that they uh, don't hand it over oh, to anybody okay, else. Okay, okay. But then, uh, can you enforce this? That's the question. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't know what what equipment I'm uh, I'm about to describe here, but I have spoken with uh, NGO workers mm -hmm. uh, related to Libya who were active during the time of the the uprising from Benghazi on, and they said, without being specific, they said, um, yeah, sure, uh, there's relief and, and aid coming in, 
And in that aid is there. There's weapons mixed in. Yes, definitely. And uh, and it's I was like the Qataris or whoever sending help to our Arabian friends, which means food, meds, and weapons. Yeah, and where do the Qataris get their weapons? Yeah, it could be right. Any country right. that has rules, right? right. About yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. Could be some other European country as well. Yeah, is there is there a, a I suppose there is a written policy about what country is acceptable. For for um, or the criteria for when you can yeah. sell weapons to a country. Yeah, it is actually there. There is some codex setting up the criteria. Does it have to be a democracy? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> it not not a not a, re, a region with tensions, internal oh, okay. tensions, okay. or or at war with its neighbors and things like that. So it's um, well, it's a question of of uh, political definition then. Yeah. It's like, of course, India is is pretty much interested in Eurofighters, mm-hmm. and uh, or Eurofighters competing with with the French and other nations for 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 a fighter bit, uh, and that shouldn't be a problem. On the other hand, well, India and Pakistan, there was something. Yes, they are not <laughs> at war technically well, or really, right. but. Um, you can't say there is no tension, right? Or submarines to Pakistan. There was oh, right, this discussion, right. and I think the French have won this bit now because they were cheaper, or they promised something else. Anyway, uh, but that's make what's make it makes it so difficult. Can't you afford not to sell fighter jets to India, one of the largest countries in the world? Mm-hmm. In the long run, I, I don't know. I, I have no answer. Can yeah. you refuse if they won't ask for it? Can you refuse to do it? Based on history, they they, they would do it. Uh, yeah. If Saudi Arabia is getting you know tanks, yeah, uh, yeah that's the point. But 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 then, um, what what remains except European Union members and the U.S.? Who else do you want to deliver or not? Well, right. that's a problem. Right. Hmm. Do we do we have? I, mean, I don't want to go too much longer, uh, so that everyone can process what they're getting here. But <laughs> do we have a lot of? Again, as the American side in me, it's good that we get to cover both my Portuguese side that laughs at submarines and things like that, and my American side that remembers uh, the connections with the defense industry and government. Um, we have projects here in the in the EU in general, and I think Germany's involved that are kind of um, we call them uh, spruce mooses or. or um, Giant mammoth projects that cost a lot of money for military uh, purposes that either never really get off the ground, never actually get into effect, mm-hmm. or are really not necessary but still get tons of money. Right. Um, now, well, everybody has those, of course. I think that's that's a given if you talk yeah. about defense because it's 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 not a market actually. You have to start with that. the The, the number of buyers is really limited, mm-hmm. so it's not a competition. It's not a market. Mm-hmm. You have a limited number of companies. <laughs> you have a limit, limited number of buyers, which are by definition or mostly or all governments. Mm-hmm. So uh, something um, as it's no market, it's it's dealing between those both sides, and they are pretty close. Mm. And of course, you have projects which have been started decades ago, 
never really got off the ground, are over time, are over budget, and all yeah. the things like that. Of course, drums have those as well, yes. Yeah. I think one of the more famous ones, correct me here, is the JSF, the Joint Strike Fighter. I think it's a bit yeah, that's both a, American, European... That's not really European. It's, it's, it's oh. a U.S. was some European countries interested in contributing, especially the UK. Uh, so so it's basically it's a US project. It's it's uh, not really a multinational project yeah. as compared to other things. Now in, in in Germany or in Europe we have those problems with certain helicopters dubbed NH ninety, new helicopter ninety. <laughs> the nineties you might have guessed from the nineteen nineties. <laughs> And we are now entering the 2000 and uh, whatever. No, we're not even entering. We are in, right in there. So have they, has one ever? Uh, they're not being produced. They're, they are produced, oh, oh. and they're even in service in, in some European countries. But they are way behind schedule, mm -hmm. and that's a problem for the German military. Here we come again to Afghanistan. They would have needed the NH90 and the Tiger attack helicopter years ago already mm. to deploy them to Afghanistan. Yeah. That's why they have to rely on the U.S. and Black Hawk medivac helicopters in North Afghanistan. Mm. Without this U.S. aviation, the Germans would have a real problem. Yeah. And they might have a real problem later this year if the U.S. draws down those forces in Northern Afghanistan. Because they don't have the... the they, they don't have those hot and high capable helicopters. Right. You know, that's the other point. Um, arms projects uh, tend to be projected and used for decades. Yeah. And before 1989, everything the German armed forces purchased was for the, the all-out war with the, with the Eastern Bloc, which would take part in Germany. Yes, in Germany, cold. In, yeah. well, it's not that cold, <laughs> but, but in German climate, yeah. in German altitudes, mm. and and not in, in a high desert country. Yeah. So, of those 80 or something cargo helicopters, CH-53, the German army owns, not even 20 are capable of, of for, are deployable to Afghanistan. Mm. All right, so we've covered uh, a little bit on, on Somalia and, right. and your, your first uh, uh, foray into, into military reporting or reporting on the military. Um, and we've gotten to Afghanistan, we've gotten to Kosovo, we've gotten into weapons manufacturers, which I'm very glad about. Um, I think lastly, what I want to do is ask you a bit about your, your approach to reporting on the military. Uh, sometimes I read journalists and I think, uh, man, they're trying so hard to have absolutely... Like, no opinion, no no criticism. It's just press release to report. Yeah. You know, this exists. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. People don't want to read that. Um, well, if it sounds good, you know, if you name a lot of weapons, and you, I yeah, think people right, do right, right. just, not that they want to read it, they just read it and accept it. How do you approach your reporting? I mean, would you describe yourself as a, as a critic of... of what comes out of the mouth of the government and, and the military? Yeah, well, I, should, I think every reporter should be a critic of what comes out of the government <laughs> and of government institutions. Now, um, but, but then uh, I describe my, my attitudes to what I'm doing as an as a attitude of critical solidarity. Um, I mentioned the, this 
pacifist uh, attitude in Germany. And, and the problem is that usually you have either people supporting, support our troops, support the government, or abolish the army immediately, leave NATO, and yeah. forget about military once and forever. Which I think it's 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 pretty pretty dumb to to take only these two stances. Uh, my, my attitude is that um, we have armed forces; they are enshrined in our constitution. A country, well, y you might regret this, but I think even in these times, especially in these times, a country needs armed forces for different reasons. So I I, I wouldn't take the stand like abolish the armed forces. On the other hand, every reporter should be critical of what comes out of the government's mouth. So I'm, I'm trying to, to keep a skeptical eye on, on how the government's dealing with the military, what they are doing, what they are procuring, and things yeah. like that. Hmm. Um, which is, it's, it's uh, in Germany, a little bit complicated to stand to take because it's pretty much black and white here when it comes to defense politics and military affairs. It's either, either you object the military or you're a military fanboy. Yeah. And there's nothing in between in, in the public reception, usually. There's you. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> okay, but uh, it's, it's, it's not easy sometimes because some people accuse me of being a military fanboy mm -hmm. because I, I don't tell them, fuck NATO and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. do away and swords uh, uh, to plowshares and things like that. Yeah. And, and, and others... Uh, complain that, that I'm too critical of what the military is doing. Hmm. <laughs> so, but, you know, uh, being in between is a good place for a journalist. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, as a country, it's, it's I think, not if not comforting, at least uh, important that you have the, the, the in-between, the Thomas Wiegold uh, saying, asking the difficult questions and, and being critical of, of the decisions as they come down and... and um, I think that's extremely important. I feel like sometimes I come from a country where that's um, fallen apart a little, not to discredit those who still try. Um, and then you have a military that does, dictates a lot of how it's going to yeah. uh, do things. And, yeah, and so. But let, let me mention at the end, uh, I'm, I'm doing this as a blog, as you mentioned in the beginning. It's called Augen geradeaus, which is in Germany has a double meaning. It's the military command, Aus front! Yes. <laughs> and sec secondly, it means looking ahead. Uh -huh. So uh, I, I love this this, this oh. pun and this, this double meaning. Yeah. And I'm doing it as a blog, which uh, enables people to comment. And I have a lot of soldiers and specialists and experts commenting in, on my blog. And those people know more about many details than I could ever do, mm -hmm. because it's their job and their Absolutely. daily routine. And I think I like, and my readers like, this input. Mm -hmm. you, you get this feedback with this added value for every reader. Mm. Okay. Well, now we know where to go. I'll put a link to it in my show notes. Right. And uh, Thomas, next time I'm back in town, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be looking to find you, and we'll talk about uh, what's happening both in your own work and, and in the world. Great. If that's all right with you. We will. We will definitely. <laughs> all right. Thank you very Great. much. Thank you for being here.